5: One of the most controversial powers the President of the United States holds is their ability to pardon or grant clemency to virtually whomever they choose. There are parameters, of course. Pardons only apply to federal crimes. A pardon can't prevent an officeholder from being impeached, nor can it expunge a conviction. In any event, it's a pretty awesome power, one that's been exercised freely There was George Washington's pardon of the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion, President Nixon's commutation of Jimmy Hoffa's prison sentence, and of course, President Ford's pardon of President Nixon.
6: The reason I gave the pardon was not as to Mr. Nixon himself.
5: Presidents have pardoned draft dodgers and drug dealers. Their actions have been praised and criticized.
0: It should be able to be done in federal courts across the country. There
6: is actually already wide consensus that certain kinds of pardons could be considered criminal acts. It does not convey any sense of guilt or any correction to that. It is an old, old power given for the purpose of correcting injustice.
5: Former President Bill Clinton was no exception. On August 11, 1999, Clinton offered clemency to more than a dozen Puerto Rican nationalists, including members of the FALN, and several of the macheteros connected to the Wells Fargo heist. It came with conditions, however. The recipients were required to sign a statement renouncing terrorism. Some had to serve the remainder of a shortened prison sentence. But still, the message was clear. The president believed that, while the insurgency group's methods, at the time, may have been flawed, their fight was just, and freedom or at least a version of it, was hovering right around the corner. Previously on White Eagle.
0: The Macheteros committing the Wells Fargo heist was one of the biggest mistakes they ever
6: made. Fundamentally, the Wells Fargo case was an attempt to criminalize the Puerto Rican armed struggle independence movement, but to do so in a place where there would not be so many sympathizers to that movement.
7: For some folks, they were like boogeymen. For others, they were heroes and, you know, celebrated.
5: My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. What you were about to hear is the true story of a heist, one that funded an international independence movement and sparked an investigation spanning nearly... Four decades. This is White Eagle. Presidential pardons and clemency decisions typically leave behind a rumble of discontent. President Clinton's decision to grant clemency to 12 members of the FALN and four members of the Macheteros left nothing short of an earthquake. For years, powerful voices on the left, including Coretta Scott King, former President Jimmy Carter, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu had been pushing for the move and yet everywhere you look someone was angry.
3: I believe strongly that the decision the President made was the wrong one and may well have some terrible impacts down the line.
8: Should we consider the freedom of Charles Manson he wasn't there at the time that the LoBiancos were stabbed to death, or when Sharon Tate was killed. They're not granting murderers and bombers of other kinds clemency. It's only these who claim they're doing something political.
5: Unlike a pardon, which essentially erases a conviction, clemency reduces a penalty without clearing the person's criminal history. In this case, the Machateros who had been given a conditional offer had already served time behind bars. Even with that, Clinton's move was unpopular. For one, many questioned the timing, which was seen as suspicious.
0: I can't tell you who told me this, but the story goes like this. Hillary Clinton is going to run for Senate.
5: Here's Hartford Current reporter Ed Mahoney.
0: And she knows she's going to lose upstate New York. But if she gets New York City, she can win. She sets up a bunch of meetings with the power brokers in New York. And she goes to see this guy named Herman Badillo, who's a Puerto Rican guy, who's a Democratic Party boss. So she goes over and um, she meets him and he goes, well, you know, Mrs. Clinton, very nice to see you, but what can you do for it? She goes, I'm going to run for the Senate and I want to know what I can do to get your support. They said, well, we need it. A new subway stop at Yankee Stadium, and we need this, and we need that, and we need the Bruckner Boulevard repaved. And she's taking the notes and says, "Okay, well, that's good. Well, I think we can handle all this." And finally, some guy who's sitting in the back of the room goes, "And they want the political prisoners free. And she goes, "What are you? Who, who are you? What? What do you mean political prisoners?" And but and you know, the rest go, "Don't listen to him. He's nuts. He's always with the political prisoners." You know, for, well, "Who are the political prisoners?" She says. Well, these are the freedom fighters, you know, but don't listen to that. There's no way anybody's going to get them out of jail. So don't even concern yourself with it.
5: Republicans in particular claim the clemency offer was an attempt to boost Hillary Clinton's Senate run in New York, which has a large Puerto Rican population. In fact, it became such a hot button issue that she eventually came out against the move, despite initial reports claiming she had supported it.
6: The First Lady herself complicated matters over the weekend when she said that the offer should be rescinded after initially supporting it. That drew fire both from Democratic Hispanics who said that they felt that she had abandoned them and from Republicans who claimed the First Lady was using her position to manipulate New York politics.
5: In her statement condemning the move, Hillary Clinton criticized the prisoners for taking too long to formally renounce violence in exchange for clemency saying their silence, quote, speaks volumes. The House and Senate voted overwhelmingly to condemn the clemency offers, as did the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. A series of hearings in the House and Senate were held on the matter, including one on September 21, 1999, led by House Oversight Committee Chairman, Indiana Congressman Dan Burton. What we want to know is, why did the president make this decision? What is the public benefit? Who advised him on this issue? Was the FBI consulted? The Bureau of Prisons? That's why we're holding this hearing today. Over the course of five hours, dozens of people spoke, including victims and family members of victims of the FALN's attacks in New York and Chicago.
2: The next indiscriminate bombing in this country will probably not kill me or anyone else in my family. But it may harm someone that you all know or love.
5: Members of the FBI.
8: Not only by their name, but by their actions, by the crimes that they committed, I think you could clearly associate the Los Macheteros with violence and crime.
5: And congressional leadership, including Democratic Congressman Henry Waxman, who read from a letter he received from President Clinton, who didn't appear at any of the hearings.
9: The question of clemency for these prisoners was a very difficult one. I did what I believe equity and fairness dictated. I certainly understand, however, that other people could review the same facts I did and arrive at a different decision.
5: President Clinton refused to comply with a subpoena for documents related to his decision, though he did share more than a 1,000 letters written on behalf of the prisoners, including some dating back to 1994. He also spoke about it with members of the White House press pool.
8: My judgment was that uh, these people should be offered a conditional clemency for two reasons. One, none of them, even though they belonged to an organization which had espoused violent means, none of them were convicted of doing any bodily harm to anyone. And two, they had all served sentences that were considerably longer than they would serve under the sentencing guidelines, which control federal sentencing now.
5: Of the 16 offered clemency, 14 eventually accepted and 11 were released within a matter of weeks. Juan Zagara accepted the clemency offer. He spoke about it in the Last American Colony documentary.
0: Am I sorry that I decided to fight f- fight for my country? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm, could I have done things differently? Yes, absolutely. Do I now think that violence is not the means to achieve anything? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that's a lesson learned in life for me. In
5: President Clinton's letter that was read by Congressman Waxman during the hearing, Juan Zagara's commutation was fully explained.
9: I commuted the sentence of Juan Enrique Zagara Palmer, so that he would be eligible for parole after serving 19 years in prison consistent with the time served by the Chicago petitioners. The timing of my decision was dictated by the fact that my former counsel, Charles Ruff, committed to many of those interested in this issue that he would consult with the Department of Justice and make a recommendation to me before he left the counsel position. Political considerations played no role in the process.
5: President Clinton has always disputed the notion that the commutations were tied to any type of political bid. He noted that a number of high-ranking people asked for the move well before he made it, including members of Congress, Puerto Rican, and U.S. church leaders, as well as 75,000 signatures from citizens demanding the prisoners' freedom. As for his wife's Senate campaign, which she would go on to win, President Clinton was firm with reporters she had no idea, and the decision to grant clemency was based on merit, nothing else.
8: She didn't know anything about it until, uh, as far as I know, until someone from her, her um, office called and asked her for a comment because I did not discuss it with her. Uh, I, I haven't discussed other clemency issues with her, and I didn't think I should discuss this one. So it was up to her and entirely appropriate for her to say whatever she wanted to about it, but I did what I thought was right, and that's what I'll continue to do.
3: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast.
4: Rappaport's reality, the reality a little of bit. us. We're a figuring little bit. out.
1: And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. It, it, would been, Ooh, it would have been the, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a a left turn.
4: Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
1: me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
8: Juan
5: Zagara was released from prison in 2004 after serving the remainder of his commuted sentence. He returned to Puerto Rico, where he lives today. Outcomes differed for other members of the Macheteros. Of the 17 people indicted in the Wells Fargo case, only 10 ended up serving time in prison. Three were arrested after years on the run, including Norberto Gonzalez Claudio, a senior Macheteros leader who the FBI viewed as the group's public relations arm. After 25 years, police finally caught up with Norberto in Puerto Rico, where he'd been living under a fake name. Then, of course, there's Filiberto Ojeda Rios, the leader of Los Macheteros. He'd spend the next 14 years on the run, popping up every now and then for interviews and to lend his name to communiques. That all changed in 2005, civil rights lawyer Ron Kuby, who you heard in the last episode, was part of the Macheteros legal team. He doesn't believe for one minute the FBI wasn't aware of where Filiberto had disappeared to after cutting off his ankle monitor.
6: They insist that they had no idea until they came upon his safe house through a lot of good luck. But when I would go down there, I knew who I could give a message to to get to Filiberto. So I I figured that if Frank Kubi knows to give a message to Blank and it'll get to Filiberto, really can the FBI really not know?
5: On September 23rd, 2005, FBI agents approached a farmhouse on a rural hillside in western Puerto Rico. Inside was the man they'd sought for more than a decade, Filiberto Ojeda Rios. What happened on that day is detailed in an FBI after-action report, though I should note some of the folks I spoke with have questioned its accuracy. According to the report, FBI agents attempted to arrest Filiberto just before 4.30 p.m. local time. What followed was, quote, a brief but intense exchange of gunfire between the Macheteros leader and three federal agents, one of whom was seriously injured. In the 90-minute standoff that followed, Filiberto's wife surrendered and was arrested without further incident. The bureau said it then engaged in a brief dialogue with Filiberto, during which he requested that a member of the press be made available to him. Shortly after, communications ended. Then, at 6.08 p.m., a refrigerator door inside the house was opened, and a federal agent spotted Filiberto through a window crouched down with a weapon in one hand. The agent then fired three shots, one of which hit above Filiberto's bulletproof vest. Several people at the scene admitted to hearing a loud cry and the sound of a person hitting the floor. After that, the agents waited for 18 hours. Then they moved in.
0: I spent the whole night hoping that he had some tunnel and had been able to take it out. You know, they kept saying that the place was surrounded and that he hadn't come out and this and It was only later that we learned that they had shot him and just refused to provide any kind of medical attention until after he was dead.
5: Filiberto Ojeda Rios was declared dead at 2.44 p.m. on September 24th. He was 72 years old. An autopsy report revealed he'd actually bled to death The night before, a slow and painful process that would have taken anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. Meaning, if he had gotten immediate medical care, Filiberto would have survived. Here's retired FBI agent Bob Heibel.
0: It was not an execution. I guarantee you. It was not not the way the Bureau works.
5: Similar to debates over the life Filiberto lived, there was discourse over the way he died.
10: In general terms, what happened was an uh, extrajudicial killing. The FBI ha- knew that he was living there for at least five years, and they choose September 23, which is the day of the Lattice uprising, which is commemorated by pro-independence movement. It's an important day in Puerto Rico. And so the manpower and the gunpowder used against Filiberto was extraordinary. And I think it wasn't required.
5: In 2006, Puerto Rico's Department of Justice sued the FBI for information about the raid and the Bureau's various raids of Machatero's safe houses. The case eventually made its way to the Supreme Court, which refused to hear it. A United Nations Committee on Decolonization also called for an independent investigation into the, quote, assassination of Filiberto Ojeda Rios. That resolution, we should note, was sponsored by Cuba. The Department of Justice's Office of the Inspector General did eventually release the results of its own investigation, which cleared the FBI of any wrongdoing. It states that agents were in imminent danger that Filiberto had readily engaged in a shootout with FBI agents in the past, and that there was concern he'd booby-trapped his house to prevent entry.
6: I knew that Filiberto managed to do something that almost no one managed to do, which was to survive a shootout with the FBI. One shootout. But I not know of anybody who survives two shootouts with the FBI. And, While I know the popular narrative is that he was assassinated,
0: I, I, I,
6: just as a personal matter, not a political matter or anything else, I disagree with that a little bit. He was armed and he was shooting back. But this was a shootout, in my view, between two different groups of soldiers one of them representing the occupying colonial authorities treading on occupied soil and the other by a patriot and a freedom fighter who was resisting the occupation do i think that he wanted to die with a hole in his lung slowly bleeding out because the fbi was too terrified to go into the safe house no i don't think he wanted to die precisely that way but I do think, to, to quote Phil Oakes, it was the life of a rebel he lived and uh, a rebel's life he died. Filiberto
5: was considered many things. To some, he was a hero, a rebel, an artist, and a patriot. To others, he was a terrorist and a foreign agent. During the course of my research, I've seen him compared to the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Fred Hampton. Malcolm Max, and of course, Fidel Castro.
0: He was a truly, truly dedicated person. He was a patriot in his own view. He was single-minded. He wasn't allowed to have a family. He couldn't live with his children. He sacrificed his entire life for a cause. It's kind of a remarkable thing.
7: Feliberto Ojeda Rios, remembered as a fighter... Also a musician, (laughs) a lover of Puerto Rico, a lover of also the land, the agriculture, you know, the memory of him finding refuge, you know, in the Puerto Rican countryside and of being uh, violently killed unnecessarily.
6: One of the only narratives that Filiberto objected to, that Filiberto was a Cuban agent. And he hated that. You know, he, he had few objections as to how he was portrayed by the colonialist media, but Filiberto was not an agent of anybody. Filiberto was a Puerto Rican patriot and was subordinate to no foreign power, be it Cuban or American or Soviet
10: or anything else. I think we, we can think about Los Macheteros as part of a historical process.
5: University of Illinois professor, Dr. Jose Atillas
10: They were part of a struggle for independence, self-determination and anti-colonialism that is really important. The macheteros did some things that they probably shouldn't have done, but they were relevant in the transformation of Puerto Rico and also kind of maintaining Puerto Rico as a different nation to the U.S. And as every political movement they have they good teens and their bad teens.
5: Which brings us to the final pieces of this story. What's left of the struggle? And why Puerto Rico was still to this day seen as America's last true colony? And where in the hell is Victor Herrera?
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
3: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast.
5: At the start of every episode, I refer to this story as one about a robbery that would go on to fund an international independence movement. What the robbery didn't do was fund a revolution. And while Filiberto is seen by many Puerto Ricans as a hero and patriot, the complete and total independence he advocated for never got the support he wanted. Here's Dr. Yarimar Bonilla-Ramos, an expert in Caribbean politics
7: that there is a solid 45% block of Puerto Ricans that want statehood, that consistently vote for statehood, and that number is increasing. What the rest of the population wants is hard to explain, hard to define. For some of them, it depends on what's on offer, (laughs) you know? It's not clear to them what the possibilities are.
5: In November of 2020, 52% of voters participating in a non-binding referendum said they were in favor of statehood. Though I should note, just over half of the island's population took part in that vote. Jennifer Gonzalez Colon is Puerto Rico's non-voting representative in Congress.
6: We cannot vote for our commander-in-chief. We do not have four members of Congress. But yet, Congress
1: has all power over us.
5: For now, Puerto Ricans living on the island exist in a state of limbo. They are U.S. citizens and can move freely to and from the mainland, but they can't vote in presidential elections, generally don't pay federal income tax, and have no voting member in Congress. Unlike Alaska and Hawaii, which became states after existing as territories, Puerto Rico has remained an unincorporated U.S. territory, a commonwealth, in charge of its internal affairs, but at the mercy of the U.S. government when it comes to a number of things, including trade, the location and use of its military bases, foreign relations, telecommunications, the list goes on.
7: As the legal texts say, we belong to but are not a part of the United States. We are a property, we're a possession, and indeed the former president asked if he could sell us. So it left kind of no doubt about the relationship that we have. And then when Hurricane Maria came and federal aid was so slow to arrive and we got paper towels instead of housing assistance, I think, you know, all of that cemented the idea that no, we are not part of the fabric of the United States.
6: Puerto Rico has been in the dark since Hurricane Maria slammed the island last week. 85% 85% of the power lines have been knocked out, and it may be months before they're repaired.
8: In Texas and in Florida, we get an a
0: plus, And I'll tell you what, I think we've done just as good in Puerto Rico, and it's actually a
8: much tougher situation.
7: Uh, now- Many people feel very bad about everything that happened with Trump, but... There, there are ways in which the policies that he enacted were just the application of the political relationship that we have. And in many ways, he just made clear what other politicians have just covered up with facades and pretty language and obscure, you know, rules and procedures. And in fact, it was under Obama that, you know, this, revelation of our lack of sovereignty began to become apparent with the imposition of the PROMESA law, the Federal Oversight Board, our inability to declare uh, bankruptcy or renegotiate our own debt. All of that happened, you know, under a different president. So I think it's important to not pin it all on one president. And in some ways, he did us a favor in saying the quiet parts out loud.
5: Efforts for Puerto Rican statehood on Capitol Hill have moved forward in stops and starts. In 2021, lawmakers introduced two bills aimed at changing Puerto Rico's status as a commonwealth. The Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act and the Bipartisan Puerto Rico Statehood Admission Act. As for Puerto Rico's future, Dr. Bonilla says she's optimistic.
7: I think Puerto Rico in the past decade and certainly in the decade to come has been going through the most rapid historical transformation in its history. The way in which they imagine our political possibilities. I mean, the fact that we toppled a governor <laughs> and for the first time came together across political divisions and have been coming together to protest austerity, to demand increased in salary for public workers, to also demand the end of gender violence and demand greater inclusivity. I see a Puerto Rico that is under great threat, including the threat of climate change, but I also see a Puerto Rico that is very much invested in dealing with those threats in new ways.
5: And while independence is an option, many of the experts I spoke with, including Dr. Bonilla and Dr. Jose Atillas, say the armed independence movements of the past have taken a backseat to the island's main political parties.
10: After the assassination of Filiberto Herrera Rios in 2005, macheteros kind of disappear. There have been some communiques by the, some branches of the macheteros, but I think we can say that they are no longer present or alive.
7: There certainly is not armed struggle to the extent that there was in a previous era, but there are still groups that operate in the tradition of clandestine movements who sometimes do uh, things without necessarily, you know, identifying themselves.
5: As for the man who started this whole story, Victor Herrera is the last fugitive from the Wells Fargo robbery case who is still at large. He remained on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list until 2016. That's 32 years, longer than any other fugitive in history. I've asked everyone where they think Victor is and if he's still alive.
10: In my interviews with members of the Machaderos, I tried to kind of ask, but they never told me.
1: (laughs) I think he pretty well could be alive. I think there was little doubt on anybody's mind he was in Cuba.
6: I remember mean, hearing he was probably down there, you know, in, in Cuba with the money and became a hero for the cause. I mean, Victor could be in Hartford right now. I mean, who knows where he is? He could be anywhere. Oh, well, I think everybody knows where Victor is, or at least well, I, I think everybody is firmly convinced that Victor is in Cuba. I mean, he was a young man at the time, so I don't have any reason to think he's shuffled off this mortal coil.
5: I asked my Machatero source if Victor is still alive. Quote, well, he's like 10 years younger than me, so I do not see why he wouldn't be. End
0: quote. Victor is the only one I know of who carried out a $7 million robbery after being trained and financed by the Cuban government, so maybe he was treated differently.
5: And if the health gods have been good to him, Victor is still alive around 64 and living a life of solitude for the most part. I do believe the U.S. government, meaning the FBI and CIA, know where he is, keep an eye on him, and feel at this point it would be too big a political hot button to push if they grabbed him. There's still a warrant out for Victor's arrest, as well as a $1 million reward in the case. Maybe one day authorities will catch up to him. My best guess is that he's still alive and living in Cuba. My hope that he managed to listen and he reaches out someday to tell me his side of the story. White Eagle is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer and script supervisor is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Christian Bowman. Our series theme, Forms Regal or Grand, is written by Aaron Kaufman. Thanks to Arlene Santana and Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. And a very special thank you to Northern Light Productions and Bester Cram for allowing us to use clips from the documentary, The Last American Colony, which is available to stream on demand. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today.
4: Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport, and me,
1: Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Hey guys, this is Paris
7: Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs in Schools.
1: They held us in dog cages,
7: they starved us, they beat us